We talked about doubt, the sin of doubting is the name of the series that I've been on for some time now because Jesus got more upset, more disturbed, and rebuked more strongly the disciples when they doubted than virtually anything else that happened in their lives. Because Jesus knows that when we operate by doubt, we can't expect anything from God. In fact, it says in the book of James, if you and I are double-minded about something, we come to God about it, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord whatsoever. And I said, doubting is a hesitation on our part to believe God and his word. Let me say it again. Doubting is a hesitation on your part or mine to believe God and his word. If God's word says that you must repent to be saved, repent and have faith in Christ, and you doubt it, you will not be saved. The word of God says as a Christian, you must walk in the light as he is in the light to have fellowship with him, and you doubt that and don't believe that, you will not have fellowship with God. Whenever God's word says it, remember it isn't God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. God says it, and that settles it. Whether you and I believe it or receive it or whatever we do with it, it's settled once and for all because it's settled in forever in the heavenly. And it's the word of God by which we're going to be judged in that day. Someone says, well, I don't believe what that preacher says. Don't worry about that. But whenever you say, I don't believe what the word of God says, you're in trouble automatically. Because the word of God is like silver seven times refined. If God says in here there's none righteous, you've got to mark it down. You and I aren't righteous in ourselves. If you and I do not trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God's word says we're lost, and in that day we will be cast into a place of fire with the devil and his angels and shall suffer torment forever and forever and forever. In the Greek it's eighth, aeon, uh, aeon, eighth, aeon, which means forever and forever without end. You say, well, I don't believe that. That doesn't change it one bit. That's like you're tearing up a, a map of Florida and thinking you've destroyed all the roads in Florida. It's settled forever. If God said it, that's what it's going to be. You say, well, God said this and it hasn't happened yet. Well, just don't worry about it. It'll happen. Because he says not one period, not one comma in his word will go unfulfilled. It will be fulfilled. And that's why I'm saying it is a sin to doubt what God says. If God says you need to become a Christian and you haven't done it, that's disobedience and rebellion to God. And God says that the rebellious will be cast into hell. You say, well, it hasn't happened yet. God doesn't settle his books at the end of a week or a month or a year. He settles them at the end of the life. And he gives you as long the mercy and grace of God goes on and on and on and on in our lives. But don't ever take it for granted because I have seen many in the years of my ministry who said, well, one of these days I will go ahead and do what God tells me to do. And they never lived to do that thing that they thought they were going to do. See, we have no control over it. God is in complete control. Now you've got to believe that. You've got to believe that because that's what God's Word says. If you don't, that's doubt and that's sin. And so we've been talking about the aspects in which Christians doubt God. Not, not the unbeliever now. I want to go on to Christians. First of all, many Christians doubt God concerning their salvation. It's interesting how that young person thought that this book said that, in the paper, I mean, about the book, said that uh, God is going to take all the perfect people to heaven. No, he's going to take all the justified people to heaven. Those who have trusted Christ's death in their behalf and have applied his blood by faith to their sins, had it washed away, have renounced their sins and turned and come toward God and said, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. I appropriate his death, his burial, his resurrection on my behalf. I appropriate his blood as the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. They're the ones that are going to go to heaven. But there are many people, even after having made some kind of a decision toward Christ, who doubt their salvation. Now, a lot of 
Calvinist would go back and say, oh, now that, that was a genuine experience back there. Well, let me just say this to you again so you can settle it once and forever in your heart. If you have doubt of salvation in your life tonight, don't try to go back and patch up some old experience. I did that over and over and over again as a new Christian. And finally, I just got tired of it, and I said, if that last one wasn't good enough right now, this seventh day of September 1988, I repent of all my sins. I believe again tonight that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I appropriate his death in my behalf. Lord Jesus, wash me in the precious blood. I want to be your child. I want to walk with you in obedience every day. Satan, if that isn't good enough for you, talk to the Lord and leave me alone. I've settled it again. Because there are many Christians who go around doubting their salvation. Now let me tell you, a lot of people doubt their salvation and have good reason to because they don't obey the word of God and they say with their lips they love the Lord, but you don't see it in their daily life. And the word of God says, don't be deceived by this. If you have been born again of the Spirit of God, sin will be a, a you will hate sin. Someone said it's not enough to be a gardener to raise vegetables, you've got to hate weeds. Uh, be a good gardener. And if you are genuinely born again of the Spirit of God, you may still stumble and fall into sin, but you're going to hate it. You're going to feel horrible about it. You'll never be happy in sin again because you know what it is to be free. And every time you stumble and fall, you get up, Father, in the name of Jesus, wash me from this sin. I don't want it in my life. I renounce it. I resist it in the name of Jesus. As what we're talking a while ago, you put on the whole armor of God every morning, the helmet of salvation with Breastplate of righteousness, feet shot of the preparation of the gospel. We become soldiers. God hates it when we doubt his word, even concerning salvation. Many doubt God's love because they see things happen in this life they don't understand. Well, let me tell you something. If you and I will only enjoy those things we understand or believe those things we understand, we're in trouble because there's a lot of things I don't understand but I still enjoy a lot of things that happened in my life have happened in my life to me and other loved ones of mine that I may not understand, but it doesn't make any difference because I have a foundation upon which to stand, and that is God says, my thoughts toward you are continually good. All things work together for good to them that love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. So I don't care what your circumstances presently may be. This life is like a vapor that appears for a moment, and in the light of eternity, it's not even a puff. And the trials of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. So I praise God even in the midst of my circumstances and trials and tribulations and tests now. Because the trying of my faith, being much more precious than gold and silver that perishes, causes my patience to be perfected in this world. Wouldn't everybody follow Christ if he gave every one of us a brand new Rolls Royce and a multi-million dollar palace? So how about when the afflictions and the tribulations and the trials and the tests and the bills and the problems come along. We're not to doubt God's love at that time. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee. I'll never put more on you than you can bear. I promise you that. And I'll make a way for you to escape. Now, if you go around saying, oh, God doesn't love me. Boy, I'm going to smash my head into a wall. I know it's going to be destroyed this time. You're doubting God. You're calling God a liar. And don't expect to get anything from God. If you say, Lord, this isn't easy. But you said I would have the grace and the strength to go through it. I thank you for that grace. And I know that you're going to show me the way to escape when the time comes. In the meantime, Father, please let me be able to develop the patience that you want me to develop in my life. Well, I've just waited long enough. That's like saying, God, give me patience and I want it right now. It doesn't work that way. Then we've talked about doubting God's promises of peace, 
and of joy and of guidance. Well, tonight we want to go one step further, and that is we doubt many times that God has promised us victory over temptation in our daily life. I like what one person said, no one is a follower of the Lamb who is not a soldier of the cross. Let me say that again. No one is a follower of the Lamb of God who is not a soldier of the cross. It's easy to say, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but the way the proof of the pudding is not in saying it, it's in walking. It's easy to say, I love my wife or I love my husband, but the proof of the pudding is what you do when opportunity comes to show love for them or to show a lack of love for them. It's easy to say that I respect my parents as young people, but you can say it all you want to, the real rubber meets the road when you get out in a circumstance where you know the things that you're doing are disobedient to them. And if you really love them and honor them, you wouldn't do it at that time. That'll prove whether you really love them or not. I've seen so many young people that have gone and constantly put flowers on their parents' graves and gone out and taken care of the grave site over and over again. And the first thing I say to them, they aren't there anymore. Why are you going out there? If you want to honor them, don't keep dumping flowers that are going to wilt on top of their grave. Show it in your life by glorifying what they've done in your life, the training that they've given you and the encouragement that they've given you. Let others, when they see you, say, boy, didn't they do a good job raising that one? And if you really love them, it'll be manifest by doing things will be pleasing to them. No one is going to be a follower of the Lamb who isn't a soldier of the cross. Look at 2 Timothy, the second chapter. Paul talking to, to young Timothy. 2 Timothy 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. And here it is now. Remember what I just said, no one is a follower of the Lamb who is not a soldier of the cross. Verse 3, read it with me. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a what? To be a what? How many of you know that when you become a Christian, it is not a time for retirement, it's a time to go to battle? Some people seem to think that automatically we shift into neutral and we just float up to heaven. If you've got that concept of Christianity, i got news for you. You are misinformed. The Word of God says that we're to put on the whole armor of God. How many of you know that armor can be very uncomfortable if you aren't fighting? Anybody ever want to put on a suit of armor and sit in an easy chair with it? It'll pinch, it'll bind, it'll get hot, it'll get very uncomfortable. The purpose of the armor is to protect you. And why do you need protection? Because we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And that's why I'm saying if you and I say that we're following the Lamb of God, we're not doing it unless we're a soldier of the cross. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Paul said to Timothy. That enduring hardness means endure discipline. Learn to be disciplined in the things of God. Someone said, if this really were an army, what's the song, uh, Onward Christian Soldiers, and they sang it in church one morning, and a, a military man got up afterwards and said, you know, if this were really an army today, most of us would be put in the brig for being AWOL. Because we come to church if we don't have a relative come in town, or if we didn't stay out too late the night before, or there wasn't a good football game that day on Sunday, and he said, 
You realize we call ourselves soldiers, but we're a disaster when it comes to calling ourselves soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ. If we were soldiers, we'd be disciplined and we would not become entangled with the things of the world. The things of God would come first in our lives. But God has promised us victory over temptation. I want us to just take some scripture verses now to show you that there are promises in the word that we can receive as believers and we can either doubt them or believe them and it will manifest itself in how we operate in our daily walk. Romans the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8. Verses 35 through 39. Now I want to say before I read this that he is talking about outside forces separating us from Christ. It doesn't say anything about us deciding to be separated from Christ. It doesn't say that we can't turn our backs and walk away and forsake him and just say, I don't want anything more to do with that. I say that because some people think this says that we have a hammerlock put on us and we can never get away again. It's not saying that. It's saying when things come against us, nothing from the outside coming against us can separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The tribulation or distress? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Doesn't it sound like we're going to have fun? Huh? Fun time, huh? Happy time. I want you to see that so we're not deceived. We're in the last days. As it is written, for thy sake, we are excited all the day long. What? We are killed all the day long. We are like as sheep for the combing. We don't get brushed and combed, do we? Now, I want to show you something. Paul, the apostle, in writing the church of Rome, says, just to give you a little understanding, persecution and hard times are going to come, but none of these things can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Get ready for it. Get the armor on so you're prepared for it. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. Now, I want to analyze that verse. I want to end like the Williams translation says, in all these things we keep on gloriously conquering through him who loved us. That's different. It means we are not passive in the matter. It means we, by an act of our will, choose to follow after the Lord. You see the difference? It isn't I just sit back and God drags me through it all and brings me out on the other end, rings me out and says, okay, you're all right, you're going to make it now. That is what it says. It says, through him, through Christ, abiding in Christ is where we have our victory. Every day, committing our lives to Jesus Christ completely. The Lord's Prayer that we were taught to use as a pattern for praying. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, but God's will. That's what Jesus prayed when he was in the garden. If it be possible, let this cup pass me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, Father. Not my will, Father. Your will be done. This cup is bitter. I don't look forward to it, but that really doesn't matter at all, Father. Whatever you want, that's what I want. I've come to do thy will, O God. How many of you know when we come to Jesus Christ, we don't come to him to do our will? Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, wife and children, in fact, if he's not willing to die every day and hate his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. How many of you know this is not the easy believism and success message that you usually hear? It says that we are going to have to stand, and having done all to stand, to stand, therefore. It tells us that we're going to have storms come against us continuously. One thing after another. One way you say, oh, I don't think I can take another. And I rebuke that statement in the name of Jesus because God said, he'll never put more on me than I can bear. I'll take everything they've got to throw at me. 
because I am more than conqueror to him that loved me. In all these things, we keep on gloriously conquering through him who loved us. Now, the reason I want you to know, look on to the end, then I'll go back and show you, that it's not saying that we're automatically locked in. There are other warnings in this same chapter that give evidence that this isn't what he's saying at all. He's saying is, as we abide in the Lord, we will be conquerors, and we will be victorious over all these situations. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That little phrase is used, I'm told, 164 times in the New Testament, which is in Christ, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're in Christ, in God, we have the protection that we need to do it. Now, to show you that this is not some passage thing, look back at verse 6 of the same chapter. We can have victory, but there's warnings here in this chapter. For to be carnally minded is what? Death. But to be spiritually minded is life and... All right? If we profess to be Christians and we allow ourselves to become carnally minded, he says it'll come to death, eventually. Verse 12. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh or our sensual nature, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall what? Now, who's he talking to there? Brethren. But if ye through the Spirit, through the Spirit, do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Verse 17. And as children and heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we Suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. We are heirs if we're willing to suffer with him. We are heirs if we're willing to put to death or mortify the deeds of the flesh. In a warfare, in a daily warfare, God says, I'll give you the victory because you're going to be influenced by the powers of darkness and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. They're going to come against you every day to influence you, but they can't make you do one thing. The Word of God says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, does that indicate that something has to take place on our part? We have to choose, don't we, every day? The enemy, through these five senses, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, will come and say, oh, this would be fun. Look how, how important you would be if you had this. Look how exciting this would be. Look how wonderful and much you'd be envied if, if you got involved with that person or this person. And the Spirit of God comes along and gives you another message. And then you have to decide which one it's going to be. And you know what that decision is going to be based on? The decision you made back there when you said Jesus is Lord. If you meant he's Lord, you don't even have to make a decision. That's the most wonderful part about it. If he's Lord, there's no decision to make. You just act on the one you've already made. Now let me apply that. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you are married. And at that time, you said... I give myself to this person and to them only for long as I shall live. Now, if that was a quality decision, it'll have opportunities the rest of your life to find out whether you meant it or not. You don't believe me, you look at the divorce rate today. I'm going to cleave to her and to her only. Now, you're going to have friends want to drag you away and get you involved in their things. You're going to have other persons of the opposite sex come and try to draw you away and talk to you and entice you. You're going to have all kinds of pornographic type of materials come into your presence and so forth. And it's all going to be based upon, did I mean that when I said what I said? If I meant it, I don't even have to make a decision. That's not for me. I dated girls before I ever met Beverly, but when I married Beverly, I tore up all those books, all those names, all the addresses. All the pictures. I didn't even keep the pictures. 
Why should I keep the pictures of dead experiences of the past? You know what the trouble is? A lot of times when we come to Christ, we put a lot of our old world experiences in our pocket here and carry them along just in case a rainy day comes along and we're not too excited about the things of the Lord. If we really meant it back there, we said, Jesus is Lord, and I give myself to him body, soul, mind, and spirit, because that's what he said, and that's what he demanded. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And if we don't do it, we're already set up for defeat. Because we didn't mean what we said, we're double-minded, and don't expect to get anything from God if we're double-minded. Hello. That's what it says. Want victory? Get single-minded. Did I mean it when I told Jesus he was Lord back then? If I meant it, then when the enemy comes against me, I will say, mind, you belong to me, and I command you in Jesus' name, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, whatsoever things are of praise, think on these things. I command you in Jesus' name to put those other thoughts out. They have no place in my mind. My mind will do what I tell it to do in Jesus' name. I come against those thoughts with the blood of Jesus. I declare a release from them, and I will stand. It'll even sanctify your finger. The other night, the young people were over, and I was flicking the button on our television set just to see what was on, and I hit the mute button, and just about the time the mute came off, there was a filthy word that came out, and all the young people were, and I tried to get that thing going a little bit further down the line. But I thought, you know, you really have to watch it nowadays, what you turn on. Why? Because it affects this, and it affects this, and it affects this. And before long, you become double-minded. And you will not have victory over temptation if you're double-minded. But Paul says, none of these things will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus if we have made that total commitment to Jesus Christ, where we are soldiers, soldiers of the cross. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 57 and 58. He's just talking about the mystery of being changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. This is the mystery he just revealed to us concerning the, the rapture or the catching away of the, the church. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58. He just got through saying, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where's your sting? And so forth. Verse 57, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory, and there it is again, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, let me ask you something. Does that sound like a passive action? Be steadfast. Any of you ever found a wife or a husband who were steadfast? That means when they knew something was right or wrong, they stood there. I'll tell you, that's something that parents need to learn today. They really need to learn that. A lot of parents think, boy, if I'm hard on my kids, they won't love me. If you stand with conviction in front of your children, they will scream, they'll beller, they'll kick, they'll roll, they'll do everything. And when you just stand there and say, do whatever you want to do, but that's what the rule is. That's the way it is in this house. As long as you have your feet under my table and your body under my roof and your body in my bed, that's what the rules are here. But that's not the way all the other kids in the whole world get to do that. Oh, that's fine. That's because they're not my kids. But, but you're my kids and you won't do it. I understand that's the way the rule is. Now, that's not the easy way, but they'll rise up to call you blessed because they really want to know where the boundary lines are. I'm telling you, insecurity 
and nervousness comes to young people when they hit the wall one time and it doesn't give and they hit it three more times and it gives and then they hit it again and it doesn't give and they don't know where they are. Every time it's the same. No, that's the way it is. Now that will build security and strength in your home if you'll do that, parents. First of all, the two of you agree. Don't disagree on anything in front of your kids. If you do, you need your heads examined. And tell your kids if they ever try to split you up, you'll deal with them very severely. You will never divide you two because God made you one and anybody comes along to divide you is doing the work of the devil and you're not going to let the devil's work go on in your house at all. Ever try to divide. Don't you ask one of us one thing and then ask the other one the same thing hoping to get a better answer. If you do, you've been nailed, right? Now, if you just do that automatically and they just know it's automatically going to happen and it never changes every time they do it, it does happen, you're being steadfast. You do it because you love them. But you know something that's not easy to stand solid like that all the time? Because you always have pressure from the outside world coming in on you as a mother and a dad. They're those decisions. But you choose to do what God tells you to do. He says do the same thing in your relationship with the Lord. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You ever seen some people, they're like, they're not in the Lord's army, they're in the Lord's navy. That up and down experience continuously, you know, Every every two or three months, you, you never know where they're going to be. Oh, you're up there? Oh, down here. I've, you ever seen Christians like that? One day they look like they, they got a Youth for Christ smile all over the face, and the next day they look like an eat oats out of a three-foot stovepipe. You seen that kind of Christian? Huh? That's because they're not steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as they know their labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know why most of them are like that? Because they're not laboring for the Lord. They're not doing anything for the Lord. They're not expecting anything to happen. Nothing is exciting to them. They're not saying, boy, I just trust this is the week my neighbors accept Christ. I trust this is the week my friends come to church with me and they find Christ as their personal faith. They don't have any goals like that whatsoever. I'm looking forward to this Thursday night taking my buddies along to Bible study so they can, they can really come to know the Lord. They don't have anything like that. The Bible says idle hands and idle minds are the devil's workshop. And let me tell you something. If he's working overtime with you, it's just evidence that you're not in the work of the Lord and doing what God calls you to do. 1 John 3, verses 7 through 10. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might what? Destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. It actually means cannot practice sin. Cannot practice sin. They're miserable when they sin. Whosoever is born of God does not practice sin. For his seed, the word of God, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. He cannot continue to sin. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is what? Not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now let me tell you something. You can say all you want to about if anybody just makes a decision automatically, they automatically go into the kingdom of God, but there is an evidence that they are born again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is the new creation. Am I saying it's the perfect? Absolutely not. I'm saying you have trusted the perfect one and if you follow him, you will walk in light. And light exposes the works of darkness. 
You see them for what they are. Even though you stumble and fall, you get up and recognize that you have stumbled and fallen. You ask God for forgiveness and you go on. And when it happens to you, then when somebody else comes at sin, you can say, hey, the only difference between you and me is the grace of God. I've stumbled and fallen. I can comfort you with the comfort wherewith I have been comforted. He that saith he has no sin deceives himself. But we have someone to go to with that sin. Remember that little bumper sticker, that little button that Bill Goffey used to give out, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? Yeah, and please be patient, God's not finished with me yet was another one. That's, that's the Christian walk. But the evidence of the new birth is the lamb-like nature. And I'll just, this is in my notes, but I'll close with this illustration. Uh, some of you have probably heard it before, of the farmer that had this pig and this little lamb and two little stalls. And they had the pig all scrubbed up ready for the, for the show. And the lamb was all combed and had a ribbon around his neck and everything. And they were both ready for the show. And something happened that these two cages, the gate came open. And the pig got out and the lamb got out behind it. And the pig ran down the hill to the mud hole right down the bottom of the hill. And just plunged in, squealing and squeaking and just having a good time. Just as happy as he could be clear up to his belly in mud. And the lamb, you know what a lamb does, a lamb will follow anything. He came just bouncing right down behind him and he plunged in there too and all of a sudden the lamb was going like this. Ugh, that. And the farmer came out, saw what happened, went down and grabbed both of them, brought them back up, scrubbed them all down, washed them all off again, brushed them all out, put them back in their little cages. Something happened again in a little while that the same thing happened again. The gates came open, the hog went right down the, the hill, plunged in again, squealing and grunting, and the lamb didn't follow him that time. And the first time he did, he was dumb enough that he went the first time, but because he had a lamb nature and not a pig nature, he didn't go with him the second time into that mud. He learned his lesson. Because if you've got a lamb nature, you may fall into sin, but you won't stay there if you don't want it. God told us that we'll have victory over temptation. We've got to believe him for that, and we've got to strengthen it a day-by-day walk by a quality decision. My body is not my own. My life is not my own. I have given it totally to Jesus Christ. I will be held responsible as his steward for what I do with it. And I give my life to him completely. And Lord, I'm going to believe you for victory over every temptation every day. If there's an area of weakness, and let me just say this, if you have an area where you have prayed over it and cried over it and sought God's deliverance, I mean freedom over this thing time and time again, there may be evidence that you need to be ministered to him from deliverance. But I'll tell you this much, there is victory for the believer if you'll take it, if you'll receive it, if you'll believe God for it. If Jesus comes this coming weekend, we can stand and be ready for him to come victorious because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin and we can be witnessing that he is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Again, the definition of doubt is a hesitation on our part to believe God in his word, is doubt. Just a hesitation on our part constitutes doubt. And the reason many times we are doubting God is because we aren't listening for his voice. We just plunge ahead and think, well, somehow, some way it's going to work out. But he said, my sheep hear my voice. And we need to be very, very careful and not blame God for a lot of things that are not God's fault. I can still remember one thing that impressed me so much at Bible college when I was there, how different ones would, fellows would come over to the dorm and say, Tori, and say, oh, God has just led this young lady and me together. It's just so wonderful. It's just so perfect. Oh, God is so good to us. And two weeks later, God led us apart. 
And then God led me to another one, and God led us apart. And God led me to another one, and oh, this one's got to be it. And then two weeks later, I said, why don't you stop and wait and see if it's God? Why don't you really ask the Lord not to even let one look good to you until it becomes the right one? And it's a lot better that way. But then I saw a lot of them go ahead with that same attitude, plunge in and get married. And today, many of them that were in Bible college with me today are divorced, remarried, divorced, remarried. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because the Scripture says that we should seek the Lord for wisdom and then wait on the Lord until all the signs are clear for us to proceed for God's will. It has to be consistent with the Word of God. If someone said there's three lights concerning ascertaining the will of God, I hope I can remember three of them right off the top of my head. One is, is it consistent with the Word of God? If it's not consistent with the Word of God, just mark it off. It's not God's will. That's why I tell people, if, if you're trying to ask God to do something or let you do something, it's not, I mean, it's written in the Word that you shouldn't do it. Save your breath. It'll never become God's will. Do you know what I mean? The Word won't change. Some people like to change the word to fit our conduct instead of changing our conduct to fit the word. Then the second thing has to be a witness within our own heart. Some people you say to them, well, do you really feel God's leading in this? Well, how can you tell? Well, you will have a witness in your heart. You will know you'll have a peace in your heart as you begin to move forward. If you ever have a little check, a little doubt, a little question where you say, well, something tells me, something tells me, you know, I keep telling you, don't call him something. And the Holy Ghost nudges you like that. He doesn't slap you upside the head of the two before. He just nudges you. Just hmm. You get that little check in your spirit. Whenever you sense that, back off. Thirdly, outward circumstances will fall into line. I've seen some people say, this is God's will, and just fight and battle and knock and try to push doors open. And when they finally get into it, it becomes a big, horrible mess. And they said, I just know God was leading us. Well, I mean, a bulldozer couldn't have stopped them. They were determined they were going to do it whether it was God or not. So those three things, is it consistent with the Word of God? Secondly, do you have an inward witness? Thirdly, outward circumstances will work out when people say, God called me to the mission field, but I, the money isn't coming in. I said, then go back and check your call. What do you mean, go back and check my call? Well, if, if God calls you to the mission field, in his time, you'll be on the mission field. God told Joseph he was going to rule over his brethren. And Joseph would have loved to have picked up a scepter and started ruling over his brethren, but God sent him through a school of hard knocks for 13 years before he was in a position spiritually that he could rule over his brethren. God anointed David to be king, but God let David go through a whole lot of lessons before he made him to be king. Now, I said all that to tell you that many saints today are in trouble because they don't listen for God's voice. They don't wait upon the Lord to see if he's giving them a release or freedom to do something or giving them a check in their spirit. They're not willing to search the word of God out to find out, is this consistent with the word of God? And then do the outward circumstances work out accordingly? Uh, now, maybe, maybe I should, uh, for some reason, I feel like I should emphasize this tonight. When young people start praying, Lord, give me a sweetheart. Give me someone that will love me and I can love them when they're teenagers. Well, first of all, if they're not born again, if you're born again Christian and they're not born again, I mean committed to Jesus Christ, please don't come to me and tell me that God told you that you're going to convert them. The scripture says, do not be unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever. Now, I know there are some that say, well, it worked for us. You better thank God because it was the mercy and the grace of God that it worked out. But odds are, if you disobey God in this thing, you'll get into trouble down the line. 
Whenever you marry into the devil's family and the devil's your father-in-law, you can just expect trouble. So when God's word says, be not unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever, it means don't get emotionally involved with them. So you can pray until you're blue in the face and it still won't be God's will. God wants believers to fall in love with believers. Now, we talked about the things that saints tend to doubt. Their salvation, God's love and care, God's promises of peace and joy and guidance. And then we've been talking now about victory over temptation. We said that a lot of times we tend to doubt that God can give us victory over our temptations. We brought out, first of all, on that subject last week in Proverbs 6.27, it says you can't take fire into your bosom without getting burned. So when God says he can give us victory over temptation, it means you don't go around dumping hot coals down inside of your shirt and expect God to set you free from it. You don't snuggle up against a hot stove. I remember as a child, we had a little heating stove in the living room, and I used to have my long johns on up there in Nebraska in the middle of the winter, and I'd back up to that stove and get just as hot as I could before I'd run up to our unheated upstairs. A couple of times I backed up a little too far. I didn't stay there very long because I found out you can't take fire into your Long, long johns without getting burned either. And if you think that you can put fire in your bosom or stand around temptation or play with temptation, not get burned, just back into a hot heating stove sometime and find out how quickly you'll let that thing go. That's why Solomon was trying to get that point across to us. You can't take fire into your bosom without getting burned. So if you're getting burned, you better find out what you're doing with fire lately. Secondly, we talked about, James said, the second thing to consider when you find temptation in your life is the source of that temptation. Don't blame God for it. God tempts no man, neither is tempted. He said the only reason you and I are tempted because we're drawn astray by our own lusts and desires. So when it happens, we have to say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. God, you didn't do this. I personally lusted, I desired that thing, and I know what the Word of God says about that thing, and so I've been dumping cold down my own shirt been my problem. The third thing was, what do we do about it? We come to the mental attitude of reckoning ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Romans, the sixth chapter. We reckon, we count it as though it's already done. When these temptations come, we say, I am dead to that in the name of Jesus Christ. I am alive, spirit of the living God. Fill me, let me walk in the spirit so that I'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And he'll defeat you every time. That isn't what it says, is it? Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and what? He, Satan, will flee from you. Now, turn to Psalm 139 with me. One of the greatest things that can keep you and me from temptation and deliver us from temptation is the awareness of God's constant presence. The other day I was driving down 1792, and my cruise control had not been working for a while. And... I always find when I start going down a little hill, it'll tend to go up to 50 miles an hour instead of 45 miles an hour, and I keep letting up and take it. And I always have a struggle with trying to keep it on 45 on 1792 when there's no cruise control. But you know, I had no trouble keeping it between 40 and 45 the other day because a county mountain started following me in Sanford. He pulled out on the 1792 right behind me and followed me all the way to Longwood. You know, I didn't have a bit of difficulty keeping it right at the place it belongs, or below, not above, below. And the amazing thing was, normally on that road, if you go to the speed limit, you get rocks thrown all over your trunk as people come flying by you. Didn't happen once. All the way to Longwood. 
And you know what the difference was? The presence of a person brought conviction. You're constantly and suddenly made aware of the fact it's 45. It's 45. Keep it on 45. Don't move it off 45. Yeah, he's still there. Keep it on. But don't let that thing get over 45. Yeah. How about some of you young people when you're at school and you like to get into fun? I started to say trouble. I, but you, you enjoy having a good time. And you start to think of doing something. You look up and either Coach Pletzer or the principal are standing there looking at you. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to behave yourself at that time? Look at Psalm 139. David, a man after God's own heart, became a man after God's own heart because he understood this. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest me, my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with, what? All my ways. For there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. He not only knows what we say, he knows the motivation behind it, the purpose behind it, why it's said, the way it's said. Man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks in the heart. Thou hast beset me behind and before. In other words, you go before me and you go after me. And laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? How can I go over the speed limit? You're there all the time. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and even the night shall be light about me, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. When a Christian begins to understand this truth, that no matter where you are, whether anyone else sees you or not, God sees you. When temptation comes and no one else is around, God is still there. When you and I begin to believe that, it'll change and revolutionize our whole conduct. God is there while you're in school, after school, when mom and dad aren't home and you're home alone, when you're out of town without your parents, when you're out of town without your wife or without your husband, God's still there. When you're driving down the road and there's not another road on the car on the road and you're doing more than the speed limit, God's right there. I keep telling everybody, guardian angel retires at 55 if that's what the speed limit is. He retires at 65 if that's what the speed limit is. David says, the thing that makes me realize how I should walk every day is there's no way of escaping you, Lord. You're there all the time. Every idle word, every idle deed, every action, everything I do, you write it down. Now, you know, that can, first of all, aggravate a person if they want to get away with something. But on the other hand, it can comfort me, too. If God is always there, the enemy can never come upon me but what God is there to sustain and protect me. That's the thing I like. I can't go through a tunnel and lose God. He's right in the middle of that tunnel, too. Wherever I am, God is there. And whenever temptation comes, I can submit myself to him because he's right there, and I can resist the devil and know that he's going to flee from me. 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, verse 18. The next procedure in avoiding temptation or having victory over temptation and letting the Lord deliver you is to learn how to run. Now, in this case, where the word fornication is used in verse 18 of the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, that is the general term for all types of moral uncleanness. There are places in the New Testament where fornication means specifically and succinctly fornication, sex outside of the marriage. Here, this word application of the word here means 
any type of moral impurity. Flee from it. Someone says, if you stand near a fire, uh, near a serpent, or near a wicked woman, you won't be safe very long. So it says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You want to have victory over temptation? Take the initiative, submit, re, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and then run. Get away from it. A good example of that, of course, is with Joseph in the Old Testament, who is a type of Christ. When Joseph was approached by Potiphar's wife and grabbed his sleeve and said, come and lie with me, Joseph could, he had all authority over all of Egypt, all the Pharaoh did was sit down at the table and Potiphar turned everything else over to Joseph. Joseph could have probably gotten away with it. But he said, I cannot do this thing before my God, for you are Potiphar's wife. Now again, that's another argument to show you that God recognizes unbelievers' marriages in case you want to see that. Potiphar was not a Jew. He was not a Christian. But Joseph said, God says that you're his wife. You two are married in God's sight. And he fled and she grabbed his cloak and he let it go. I mean, he said, take my coat, but you're not going to keep me. And he took off running. That's a good example of what the word's saying here in Corinthians. If you and I want victory over temptation, we have to join hands with God in our mental attitude. We have to flee fornication. We've got to resist the devil. And then we can have victory. You know, when someone walks down the street and just says, well, I'm going to go in and drink at this septic tank or sewer in here of pornography and just saturate their mind or sit in front of a television and saturate their mind to those things and then get up and say, you know, I don't know why I'm having all this problem with these thoughts in my mind. We're not fleeing fornication. You and I have to choose whom we will serve. If we're going to have victory over fornication. Galatians 5.16 This I say then. Walk in the spirit. And ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This I say then. Walk in the spirit. And ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now these are absolutes being spoken here. If you are willing to walk in the flesh. It is assured that you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You know, the Bible says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Of course, I've always said, you can't hide a drunk in a crowd. You ever had a real drunk in a crowd? You know, he speaks loudly and staggers around and makes a spectacle of himself all the time. And when somebody is really filled with the Spirit, you can't hide them either. Because they will talk differently than they would talk otherwise. They'll walk differently than they would walk otherwise. They'll think differently than they would think otherwise. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit, you're directed by the Holy Spirit, you're led by the Holy Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Even though the lusts try to come against you, you have filled those areas with the presence of the Holy Spirit, submitted to the authority of the Holy Spirit in your mind and in your life and your mind has been committed to the Lord, you say, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report that has virtue and praise, 
That is the only thing my mind will think upon in the name of Jesus. And you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Then you'll have victory over temptation. If you are finding that this is not your experience, we need to go back and say, it isn't God's fault. God has promised that he'll deliver us from temptation, but I must fulfill the requirements that he's laid down in his word. That I am to not take that stuff into my own body, fire in my bosom. That I am to reckon myself dead indeed unto sin, recognize God sees me in every moment in the light, in the dark, wherever I am. And I'm to flee fornication. I'm to walk in the Spirit. And then the last one, 2 Timothy 2.12. The promise that goes with it. Let me just add my few words to it. If we are willing to suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He also will disown or deny us. You say, are you saying that if I disown the Lord that He'll disown me? I didn't say it. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Well, where would you find any confirmation of that anywhere else? I didn't know that God was like that. Well, let's see if we can find any place else that says something like that. Turn to First Chronicles. This gives us a motivation to want to follow after the Lord. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. God is speaking to Solomon. They were talking about building the temple. First Chronicles 28, 9. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. Just the thing that David said in Psalm 139. If thou, now there's that, there's that conjunction, if, if, you can put it in either direction now. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Just what Paul said to Timothy here. Second Chronicles, the 15th chapter. Verse 1, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he came out to meet Asa, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, what? He will forsake you. Look at Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Proverbs. Ezra, the 8th chapter, and verse 22. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen. And by the way, this is when the children of Israel were in captivity. And God told Ezra to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king gave him permission and said he could get money from the, the Jewish people and go back and build the walls of Jerusalem. He says, for I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Why? Because he'd already told him God had told him to go back. And now he's saying, hey, I, I, I don't dare go and ask you for protection. If God told me to go back, God will have to protect us. It's like the fellow that I heard of in Texas that was on the radio and he was telling everybody, write in for this little prayer cloth, all this prayer cloth. If you've got financial needs, you put it in your billfold and it'll prosper you. you You've got sickness, you put it under your pillow and God will heal you. And if you've got, and he went on and on, if you've got problems in your home, you just pack it on the door of your house and the Lord will heal that problem in your home and on and on. And then at the end of the program, he started saying, now if you don't hurry up and write and send some money into us, this program is going to go off the air. This program just won't last unless you get some money into us right away. I mean, we are in desperate straits. We're behind on our payments. And the guy heard he says, why don't you use your cloth? If that cloth is so tremendous, it's going to heal everybody else's financial needs. Why don't you put that cloth on your radio microphone and maybe it'll heal all that too. See? 
Well, this is what he was saying. I, I don't dare go to him. I've already told him that God told us that we should go back and build the cities, and I don't dare ask him for soldiers. Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. He, he told them a principle of God's word. If you yield to God, draw an eye to me, and I'll draw an eye to you. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you'll be filled. If you deny me, I'll deny you. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. That's a principle in God's word. If you want God's blessing, if you want to be delivered from temptation, you have to confess that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the enemy comes in like a flood, fear of the Lord, raise up a standard against the enemy. My trust is in the Lord. I'm not trusting in the arm of flesh, but my trust is in the Lord. And the Lord will deliver me in this situation. What you say usually becomes what happens. You have to be careful what you say. So if we're going to believe God and not doubt him, we have to fulfill these requirements and we can have victory if we're willing to pay the price to have that victory every day before the Lord. There's no free ticket in God's word. If you seek me with your whole heart, you'll surely find me. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, if any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Total commitment. That's when victory comes. Not before. But remember, doubting destroys our faith. Doubting, if we begin to practice doubting, it's going to be very, very difficult to practice faith. Look at Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if ye have, if there's that word again, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, what? Believing ye shall receive. He said, now if you do this and doubt not, it'll happen. What about if you do this and do doubt? You don't dare do doubt, do you? Because it'll affect your faith. If you do it, doubting, what did James say? If you ask doubting, don't expect a double-minded person to get anything from the Lord. You won't get it. Doubting spoils our prayer life. Look at 1 Timothy, the second chapter, 2.8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and what? If we lift up holy hands and we doubt, there's no promise for us. Doubt displeases Christ. Look at Matthew again, the 14th chapter. Just a few verses here. I want you to see how it can affect every part of our life. Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 31. Now you have to remember, this is when Jesus came walking out on the water during the storm. And the disciples saw him and were terrified. And finally, Peter said, Lord, if it be thee, bid me come to thee on the water. Someone said, well, why did the Lord ever let him do it? Well, he said, if it be thee, let me come up. And, and he said, it was me. What could I do? I said, well, come on. It's me. And he came out on the water. Of course, when he got his eyes off the Lord, he, he didn't go bloop underwater. He said he began to sink. When his doubt began to go away, he began to sink. Now, that, that, I've always been fascinated with that. 
you began to sink. Can you imagine standing on water in the first place and then all of a sudden you feel it go up over your toes slowly and then up over your ankles slowly? Whoa, I mean, I can do that in mud, but in water it said he began to sink. Read verse 29 with it. And he said, come. And when he was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, that's all right. Not many people are willing to get out of the boat and walk on the water, Peter, anyway. That is what he said, is it? I mean, man, you know what I'm thinking? He called Peter a man of little faith. I would have been hanging on the mast in the boat yet more than likely. But Jesus said to Peter, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? I wonder what you and I do if Jesus Christ were to appear physically before us. And ask us that question. Having financial difficulty? Oh, you have little faith. Wherefore didst thou doubt? Having problems with health? Oh, you have little faith. Wherefore didst thou doubt? Doubting displeases the Lord. Now again, I think that God realizes all of us are at a different level in our faith. Some people have a hard time believing God for the next meal. And others have a hard time believing God for the next Cadillac. And others have to believe God for the next six million dollars for the next week of ministry. And it's just as big a strain for each one of them because they're all at a different level of faith. But we can either stay at that level of faith or begin to stretch our faith and believe God for more. And every time we begin to stretch our faith, God will honor us if we'll do it believing that he has led us into whatever we're believing him for. And then standing on that thing. Doubting dishonors God. Look at Luke, the 12th chapter. Whenever you and I do not believe God for the answers of our needs, it's insulting him. And he, Verse 22 of chapter 12. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for your body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like, un, like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you O ye of little faith, and seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of, what? Doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth if ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. How many of us are embarrassed if we have children, and our children don't trust us? And they go down the street and start asking neighbors, would you please feed me supper tomorrow night? I'm not sure my parents are going to feed me. Uh, when you're downtown next time, could you find and see if they've got a pair of jeans down there or a shirt down there or a nice dress down there? And could you pick it up for me and just have it in case my parents don't buy me some clothes that I need this next week? Well, how would you feel? There are a lot of Christians that go around murmuring and complaining all the time that God isn't meeting their needs. Well, let me tell you the first thing right off the top of the stack, it isn't God's fault. Don't blame God. 
My God shall supply all our need, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You know, as a young Christian, it was the most thrilling thing in the world to seek God provide for my needs and just learn little by little how I could do that. I can remember when I, I was working and making as much money as I could, but I would tithe on it and I'd give extra to the Lord's work and then wonder how I was going to make it through the week and I'd get a blowout or I'd have a tire go flat on me or something and I'd think, Lord, how can I get this? I don't know that I have the money, but I just commit it to you and I'd have somebody come along and say, hey, don't, I've got a tire just like it. Here, I'll give you a tire. I said, whoa, you know, and I was almost out of gas one time, and somebody says, you know, I need to go down here. I'll tell you what, if you'll take me down there, I'll fill your tank with gas. Whoa, it took about a gallon to go down and back, and they filled it. I said, Lord, you're so good the way you provide for me. But I learned by seeing God deal in those little areas that more and more I could trust Him for more and more things in the days ahead. God wants you to learn how to trust Him every day and begin to say, Lord, you are my source. Lord, you will provide. Just teach me, Lord, how to operate by biblical principles. I don't want to bring displeasure to you. Now, the last thing, the worst thing that can possibly happen is 1 John 5. And you and I doubt, whether it be for our needs or whatever it might be, John tells us something that, that takes place. He that believeth on the Son of God, 1 John 5, 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath what? Made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. When you and I doubt God and don't believe his record, we're calling God a liar. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be called a liar. And if I don't like being called a liar, I'll assure you God doesn't like to be called a liar. And I'll go one step further. If you and I profess to be children of God, he really doesn't like to hear us calling him a liar by saying God isn't meeting my need. God isn't supplying my need. No, that isn't the problem. We're either double-minded or we're not operating by biblical principles or we're not trusting him totally regardless of the circumstances. Even when the wind is blowing, even when the waves are wild, we get our eyes off of him and we begin to sink. Don't blame God. He's just the same in the midst of a storm as he is in the calm. I would encourage you to treat doubt as you would treat an enemy. As one saint of God said, if you're going to doubt or cuss and swear and drink alcohol, I'd rather have you cuss and swear and drink alcohol than doubt God. Some people say, oh, a Christian should never drink alcoholic beverages. I agree. But how many Christians worry? How many Christians complain? How many Christians are in defeat all the time? Because they're not operating by biblical principles. And this man says, you know, you'd be further ahead to go ahead and cuss or drink than you would to doubt because nothing upset the Lord more on this earth than, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? All things are possible to them that believe. Isaiah said it, and we close with this verse, Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Pretty good verse, isn't it? My salvation, my strength, and my song. God hates doubting. God help us to be children of faith and to believe him for all these things. If he said he's going to provide it and you doubt him, we're calling him a liar. 
And the scripture says, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. God, who cannot lie, the scripture says, if he says that he will supply all our need, we must believe him for it. Even when it doesn't look like it's happening, we have to believe him for it. Read the prophecies that took place one after another of the saints in the Old Testament when God promised them something. You know that Abraham was promised a mighty nation and he never saw it? Isaac was promised a mighty nation and he never saw it? Jacob was promised a mighty nation and he didn't see it? He had 12 sons, but he died before the nation was ever born out of it, really grew. But they all lived in faith, even though they didn't see it, but it did happen. And the day is going to come when Israel is going to be as the sand of the sea, because God said it back there. He said, I said it to Abraham, it's going to happen. Just watch. So when God gives you a promise in his word, don't expect it to happen in your time schedule. Just say, God said it and it will happen. I will walk in obedience before God. I will continue to confess that he's faithful. He never forsakes us. He never leaves us. He knows where I am every moment of the day. He knows what all my needs are, and I am available to him. If he wants me to do extra work, if he wants me to do this or that, if he wants me to go, if he wants me to stay, whatever he wants, Lord, please, I'll try to be quiet and hear your voice. Whatever you want me to do, let me know. But whatever you don't want me to do, let me be sensitive to feel that checking in my spirit. And then every day I'll get up and say, this is the day that the Lord hath made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Does it look like it? Does it make any difference whether it looks like it or not? He said it. That's all I need to know. 